Hi everyone, I'm Paul Menig with Business Accelerants. Each session I bring you insights from business people as they deal with the seven forces needed to be aligned to accelerate your profitable growth and the eight drivers of business value. This session, we're going to talk about the force of nature, the risk of disruption to you and your business. With me today is Dan Whedon. Dan is a busy man with many talents. <laughs> Among his many endeavors, he's a stadium announcer for a football team, columnist for a newspaper, national podcaster, continuing education teacher, insurance broker, and coaches for individuals and businesses. So welcome, Dan. Uh, thank you, Paul. And I'm really glad that you put my stadium announcing first. I, I think that that's the funnest thing I do. So I, I appreciate that that came before everything else. <laughs> <laughs> but it's off season because it's a football. That that's you, right. You, that's right? right. That's correct. <laughs> okay. So it starts up in September or August? September, yeah. High okay. school football. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that your latest book, you've used the key term unleashed in it. When I hear the term unleashed, I think of a dog running free and maybe getting lost, and then you have to spend two or three days trying to find it. And so I'm not sure that's the term I would use uh, in a, a business case in dealing with people. So I think you have a different understanding of the word unleashed when you are talking about businesses and people. So could you elaborate on that? Sure. And, and, and unleashed for me, uh, if I was just to kind of define it, is the ability to maximize your opportunities, maximize uh, your life, and maximize your business because there's nothing restricting you. And so, yes, I use uh, the term unleashed. It came about from my, my uh, Captain Jack, uh, my dog Captain Jack, and, and uh, the whole concept of him getting unleashed is the greatest uh, thing that he can possibly do for himself, uh, not necessarily for me as his owner chasing him down, but for him, uh, the the concept of being unleashed means he can go his own way. He is he is directing his own life. He's directing uh, where he goes. And although there are dangers out there, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, he has put himself in a position to maximize his opportunities. And so that's how I look at it for business owners. The reality is, is most business, I don't want to say most, many business owners leash themselves because of fear uh, of many things, uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection, uh, fear of making mistakes. Uh, many people uh, don't ever start uh, entrepreneurship and a lot of business owners have shackled themselves. And so my whole concept, Paul, is let's get unleashed. Let's break free from the leash of fear and anxiety and stress and maximize the potential that everybody has within their own business, uh, regardless of the size, and within their own life. So uh, I talk about being unleashed in a very positive way to go out to find adventure, and to create the business and the life that you want. Ooh, that sounds fabulous. And the, <laughs> the term that came to mind while you were talking about that, I was thinking more of a prisoner and being shackled. Uh, but, you know, because you have a dog and, uh, you know, a leash, and, of course, now we have leashes that uh, have 
mechanisms and then spring loaded so that you can go out a certain distance and, right. and still pull them back a little bit. Does that and, but, but, well, but as a, as a, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you still want to have the ability mentally, and this is a mental unleashed. Let's, yeah. let's be clear for a dog. It's a physical restriction <laughs> and it, and leashes are, are a good thing. Uh, so I don't want to get, get too uh, crazy on it. it. It's really a mental vision thing is that we have to, as business owners, whether you're the CEO of a thousand uh, person uh, enterprise or you're like you and I as solo practitioners, you want to be able to have this unleashed mindset. And I talk about that in my book. It's one of the very first chapters. Uh, it's, it's an entrepreneurial mindset that, yes, uh, in order to go where I want to go as a business and in my life, I'm going to have to take risks. That means unleashing myself from the fear. That doesn't mean that uh, I can't mitigate some of those fears. I can't prevent them. Uh, but I, I'm going to take a bold step out. And that's where I think, you know, it's a key word, bold step out on a mental platform that uh, I'm going to be able to meet all of the goals. I'm going to be able to think big and dream big uh, because I've unleashed my mindset to allow myself to do that. There's a lot of other things that come to mind. Uh, we tell entrepreneurs that are startups, at least, you know, fail fast. What's your minimum viable product? Get out there and do something. We right. tell salespeople that uh, they don't want to make a phone call because of their fear of rejection, which you mentioned and, and things. So these are all factoring into unleashed in your mind. Right. And it's just a way of, of saying, hey, look, people understand dogs, uh, you know, <laughs> whether you whether you own one now or not. Most people understand what dogs are about. They would rather be unleashed. If you go to a dog park, uh, they're all unleashed and they're out there having fun and and uh, playing with each other and, and trying new things and smelling new things <laughs> and, and all of that. Right. Well, that's how our entrepreneurs, to a certain extent, really should be acting, obviously not like dogs, but they should be trying things. They should be experimenting. They should be saying, well, you know what, if, if I do fail, uh, there's, there's, another, there's another bush over there. There's something else to do. And it really is about creating a mindset. Okay, so that brings an interesting thought to my mind. Uh, I have employees. Now, I... For insurance purposes and risk purposes, I want them to follow procedures. I want them to do certain things, and yet I might also want them to, in some cases, innovate. How do I properly, maybe, how do I effectively unleash my employees? You, you use the old Ronald Reagan term that he had with the Soviet Union, you trust but verify. Okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Because, look, the worst thing you can do to an employee is to shackle them. Uh, if you have to shackle them, and this is in the proverbial sense, not in the, not in the real sense, yeah. you have other problems if you do that. But if you, you hold them back, they're going to leave you. The reality is today, Paul, uh, and, and whether you think, not you personally, but whether someone thinks it's a, a generation thing, young people, and I'll, I'll say the millennials, people who are under 30, uh, they they want to be able to be autonomous in what they do. They want to be able to see a reward. And if an employer, a CEO, does not provide adequate training, mentoring, coaching, 
skill acquisition and then letting people have the opportunity to fail because we all will grant them autonomy uh, then they're going to have problems and so in answer to your question a business owner who has employees must allow them the opportunity to fail but then also you know mentor them guide them train them i've got a situation right now with a client uh, that took a took a person who was an employee and turned them into a manager, turned them into a, have a leadership role. In fact, it, it happened shortly after uh, he, he took over the business. Uh, this person had been there a while. They were great at their job. Turns out they're not so great at managing. And even with the appropriate, uh, the appropriate training, they're going to move them back into a position where they're better suited. Now, if you have somebody in your uh, employee that, and whoever's listening to this, you have somebody in your employee and you want to advance them, first of all, find out if they're the right fit. Second of all, give them the tools and resources necessary to do their job well, and then unleash them. Let them try. Let them fail. Uh, the worst thing is to micromanage it. I know you've worked in leadership positions and you probably would agree uh, there's no quicker way to lose somebody who's valuable than to look over their shoulder and micromanage them. You talked about unleashing them with the proper training, one of which we often see is make sure they understand the culture and the values of your organization so that they can make decisions on their own, be autonomous, but do them the way that you want. And that's Absolutely. where your Reagan style uh, comes in, trust, and then verify that they're doing and following what you expect. And to verify, I think, is important in the sense that uh, outside of political things that you're verifying uh, for their best interests as well as yours, because you're, you're trying to help them be successful. And during the verification process, it's really part of coaching and training. Uh, it might be, hey, Paul, uh, how are you doing with this? Is, is, are, do you have any concerns or, or is, is, is what, what can I do to help you improve? That's part of the verification process. And what you're doing is you're collaborating with them to help them be part of the improvement. And in doing, you're, you're engendering loyalty as well. And so uh, being unleashed, uh, you know, we, we've used that word a lot. It can be for both the CEO and for the employees. And I'm going to tell you, if you have a, if you have a whole bunch of unleashed employees, uh, you're, you're likely to have a company that's doing very well. Yeah. You, you and I both have some grandchildren, and I just had the chance over the weekend to spend time with my about 20-month-old grandchild. And that idea of unleashed, I mean, you let them go a certain distance. You know they can't do things, but, boy, they have fun. They're learning. You can see they're doing things. Right. And it's all part of that process of you have to let them do some things on their own and learn that, okay, Okay, something's going to happen. So you don't let them touch the hot uh, pan on the stove. Right. You you train them. You you teach them that this is hot. This is not good. And you, you you do it in a way that they understand. But you let also let them climb on things. Oh yeah. <laughs> you let you let you 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 know that uh, they're going to fall, and it's hard. This is hard, by the way, for new parents uh, knowing that their child is going to fall. I think that's uh, one of the uh, things that when you become a parent, you have to learn yourself. And it's it's true with owners. Uh, you know, you built this business in, in, in a lot of cases and you and you 
you want it to be successful, but it's hard to let somebody else do something that, that could harm the bu- business or harm themselves, but that's part of the process. Yeah. Okay, so we've trained people really well. We've, we've given them the culture and the values. They're all intended to go out there, and, and things are going great, and you and I both know that something's going to happen. That's why you deal, yeah. I call it risk of disruption, force of nature, risk analysis is out there. You talk about in your speaking and your business crisis prevention. So what what are one or two examples that you have of disruptions that you like to talk about that have happened? Sure, and I, I actually I actually kind of use the word business continuity in some of the LinkedIn, uh, for those people who are on LinkedIn learning, I have a couple courses and it's, it's really around business continuity and the continuation of operations is, is, is how I look at it regardless of what happens. I'm gonna give two examples uh, the, the first is a, is a fairly simple one, and it, it's not necessarily one I have per se, but it happens to everybody, and that's loss of power. Loss of power for any type of business from you and me. If we lost power right now, your, your, our, our video cast has been disrupted. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. So uh, loss of power in today's business world is significant more than ever before because in a lot of businesses, can't even answer the phone. If you lose power, much less do business. And so that, that happens at about a 71% clip. So what I, what I mean by that is 71% of business continuity, <coughs> excuse me, issues come from loss of power and uh, something as much, you know, as simple as a windstorm causing that. So a business needs to be ready to say, okay, we've just lost power. Now what? Because that's the most likely thing that will happen to a business, especially a brick and mortar business, but even somebody working out of their homes like we do, uh, that's the most likely thing that that's yeah. can happen. What's next? I have a I have a client that had a <laughs> terrible thing happen to him, and again, it's one of those things that it's not a fire, it's not a hurricane, it's not a tornado, uh, but it's a broken water pipe that came out of the wall. Uh, going into a bathroom, and it broke overnight, of course, and the next day they came back to a flooded, you know, 8,000 square foot uh, place where their 20 employees now don't have, you know, they're walking in water. So that's a situation. Again, what's the plan in advance? Now, you may not, as a a business owner, say, boy, what, you know, this exact is going to happen, but you, you might have a, you might have a situation where you say, well, what happens if, we can't occupy our space, whether it be because of a, a flooded <laughs> flood that came about from a broken pipe or something else happens. We can't occupy. What do we do with 20 employees, 50 employees the next day? So these are, are, are small, what sometimes would seem to be insignificant, but turns into very significant at the time issues. And so that's an example, a flooded a flooded uh, office or a flooded technology room or something like that. Uh, a couple of things that I've seen happen with uh, businesses recently is uh, uh, getting sick. And so there are only 50 employees and you lose 10 employees uh, right. out sick that day. That is a huge impact to that business. Another was real estate rates are going up and the, their lease came up for renewal and they couldn't afford the new lease that the uh, landlord was uh, going to put up because he'd held prices down for 10 right. years, and so they ended up having to move or go out of business as a result. 
Well, uh, you know, competition is another one. Uh, somebody moves in uh, that does the same business you do, and maybe they're a national brand, and, and you're local, and you have to deal with that. Here's another one very quickly that is just very recent. Uh, in our area in Seattle, we had an unprecedented, unprecedented amount of snow. Uh, in my house here, I had 18, 19 inches. I couldn't leave. Now, I worked from home, uh, and I was able to actually make it work pretty well, but we I have many clients that uh, employees couldn't make it in. And when employees can't make it in, you might have all the power, you might have power, but you, you can't, you can't work well. And so you have to deal with, okay, are people working from home? What if this is a business that, that that's not possible or it's, it's going to be ill affected and you have national clients. So these types of things, and I always encourage my clients, don't get caught up in the catastrophic scenarios. Those are probably the easiest ones to, to think about in advance. And in fact, uh, the most insurable. You can insure for fire and windstorm and all of that. Uh, you, you can't insure for a snowstorm that keeps people from coming in to work. You can't insure for a loss of power where there's been no damage. Uh, you can't insure for the water damage, but that, you, know, you get my point. Yeah. Some of these little things that you say, oh, that's kind of a part of life. Well, guess what? It's impacted you for two or three days or a week, and that can become very expensive. Yeah, for your point about business continuity, yeah, don't worry about the catastrophic things so much because those are hardly ever going to happen. And to some extent, there's not much you can do about it. You know, what are you going to do if there's an earthquake? I can't stop an earthquake, Correct. but I can, uh, just like schools know they're going to close if there's a snowfall, you know, they have a plan in place, which, which kind of is a good transition to um, risk analysis and, and crisis prevention. Uh, I've had a chance to work on safety systems for uh, transportation vehicles, and that included a nuclear-powered submarine. And so in the engineering world, we would go through a laborious, detailed analysis of all the things that we thought could go wrong, how bad it would be if it went wrong, what could we do to detect it, and then what could we do to kind of alleviate the issue? We called it a failure modes and effects analysis. <laughs> okay. You know, gotta, engineers have to have a term and an acronym, I guess, right. for things. So how does that compare to what you do in, in the kind of the risk analysis that you might go through? Well, it's the company? exact same thing, but if I called it a failure mode analysis, I'm not sure any of my clients would have actually <laughs> hired me to begin with. Uh, but we, it, it's, it's the exact same process. So when I work with a client, we start out by identifying exposures. What's exposed to loss? Well, is it your building? Is it your people? Is it your intellectual property? Is it the product you create? I mean, and go on and on. Let's identify what is exposed to loss. That's why they're called exposures. What's exposed to loss? After we've identified it, we analyze what's the impact. You said, and, I, and you use it the same term I do. Well, how bad, what, what, how bad is it? Uh, if, if something happens to this widget, what, what happens? If the power goes out, how bad is it? You know, what are the things where you go, oh, that really makes my stomach hurt uh, mm -hmm. thinking about it versus, ah, you know what, it's not a big deal. We can, we can take care of that. So we analyze the impact. After we analyze impact, we do two, one or two, two, well, we do two things. Number one is, okay, what kind of control mechanisms can we put in to prevent 
to reduce frequency and to reduce severity. And you, you hear about loss control all the time. Well, we're going to uh, put uh, rear, rear view cameras to, in, in all of our vehicles to help reduce the frequency of uh, backing accidents, example. Uh, or we're going to, uh, if you're a restaurant, you might put in some extra hand railings or uh, some change in transitions to reduce slip and fall. Those are control methods. Uh, you might uh, do something with a building uh, for that earthquake. Let's go ahead, or we put sprinklers in to reduce fire. It's a good example. Those are control mechanisms. And then there's things you, you, you can't control and are severe and you buy insurance for. You finance your risk. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you buy insurance. And after we do that, then we say, okay, now we got to implement all of this and we got to monitor it. It's the, the trust and verify thing again. We're going to, we're going to put something into place. We're going to, we're going to create a, a, and it could be a digital plan of what we're going to do in case this happens so that when it when something like it does happen people aren't running around like chickens with their heads cut off what do we do hey we've got a plan we've thought about this here's the plan here's what we do here's who we call that's the process and it's very similar to what you just described from an engineering standpoint uh it's the same process in place and what i tell my clients paul it's not much different than when you were in grade school and the fire alarm goes off, you know, the test fire yeah. alarm, and everybody, you know, gets up, single file, walks out into the rain and stands out. It's the same concept. If people know what to do when it really happens, they, they, they'll actually do it. I had a, a multinational company uh, in the automotive industry and even the chief technology officer of this multi-billion dollar company at the beginning of every meeting had to point out where the exits are. Right. Uh, and it was part of their procedure that every meeting you have to identify what happens if. Well, I'll, 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 let me throw one fun one at you. I had a client that is a school district. It was out in New Jersey, and we were going through uh, post-Hurricane Sandy some 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 things I, I was hired by them to help and we were walking through one of the buildings and the, the assistant superintendent pointed out to all the, you know, all we have all our fire extinguishers and they're all updated. And so then I asked what I thought was an obvious question. How many people in this building know how to use a fire extinguisher have ever used one? Mm -hmm. And literally he stopped <laughs> and said, yeah, wow. Um, I bet, fewer than I'd like to, <laughs> to say. Well, the fire extinguishers are great, but they're worthless if nobody knows how to use them. Yeah. Same type of concept. We can go through all the work of identifying and, and analyzing and ensuring and all that. But if we don't know what to do in the event, you know, even mentally what to do in the event of a crisis, it, it's not going to end up well. So my work is around, let's get people prepared uh, even a little bit, because you'd be amazed at taking small steps in this, how people respond. As, as devastating as Sandy was and other accidents can be, you just said something, though, that I think is really important. In the military, they call it an after-action review mm. to figure out what went well, what didn't go well, 
and make plans for the next time something happens. Because as much as we'd like to think it ain't going to happen again, it does, or something similar does to it. Right. Well, let me point out, it's interesting because I have a client that we just are, we created a case study for. We had a, they had a situation, we'd been, I'd actually been working with this client all year in developing a business continuity plan, and they had an event that they told me about later that they had to actually put some of this in place. The event was a power failure where the elevators stopped working. Everything else, and, and so something as small as that, they actually knew how to respond to it. And I said, what you need to do is turn that into a case study because that's not the last time likely that those elevators won't work. Put it in. Elevators don't work. What do we do? And so the the importance of never let a good crisis go to waste, <laughs> right? Take that as a case study, put it in, and say the next time, oh, we've already actually got it here. We know exactly what to do. Yeah. We're going to follow this recipe. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to touch base with you on is, okay, we've all done that stuff and still there's some loss. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still a flood or whatever, and that's mm -hmm. why we, you said finance the risk uh, uh, earlier right. when you said insurance. So I, I see this nice ad on TV where, you know, something crazy goes wrong and the guy calls his insurance agent. I don't remember which insurance agent mm -hmm. it is. And, and the person at the other end says, don't worry, John, we've got you covered. Right. But I look at an insurance coverage document and all the verbiage in there, and it's not clear that as a business owner, the insurance company is looking out for my best interests uh, and that there's a part of it that maybe is, uh, well, we don't want to have to pay out. Uh, you know, medical insurance, accident insurance, things like that. So what's what's your experience with that? We've got you covered. Well, so here's the deal. Uh, insurance companies, especially the larger ones, have become expert marketers. I love all of their – I think they, they do the best in, <laughs> the best commercials out there, but they're done in a marketing and a branding sense to have somebody pick up the phone. That, that's about it. Insurance is a contract. It's, 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 you're signing a contract and paying money to an organization that is not taking on your liability, but they're taking on the assumption of the financial risk. Okay. They're assuming the financial risk. It's not that they don't want to pay for it, but they have to make sure that what they're paying for is what they, they've been given money to pay for. So your policy has here an insuring agreement that says, here's what we're going to pay for. Here are some things we're not going to pay for. Uh, you'd like it to be easier, it, easy to read as that. It's not. That's why you need to have a good broker. And the reality is, is that the, 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 when there is some sort of a loss, as long as it is a covered event, let's just use fire because fire is always covered. And you can say to your insurance company, I had a fire. It's right there. You can see the damage from it. They're going to pay for that. The challenges come in when something else happens and it's not so clear. And you'd have to prove, yes, we had this type of a, a loss. 
and it's covered. And that's why a good broker is so important, just as a good attorney, just as a good CPA, just as a good IT person or a, a web designer. Everybody, uh, you, you need to put together a team of people, and one of those should be an insurance broker who is more than just a transactional-based uh, broker who is just is, you're just uh, buying insurance from them and they're off to the next thing. You have to have a broker in place that understands your business, and that's really what we're talking about today for is business that understands how you make money, what your operations are, has gone through a process, probably not as in depth as what I did because I do that from a consultative standpoint, but has gone at least through a process to say, these are the biggest risks that we can insure for you, and we're going to make sure that that's in place. Uh, insurance companies aren't bad guys, uh, but what they do is they do have a contract. And they, the problem is, is that they speak insurance language, and you, as the insurance buyer, rarely do. And that's where the intermediary of the broker comes in to say, I'm here to help you. Is the, the licensing that a broker has almost equivalent to the license that a, a lawyer has? And, and can I, as a business owner, rely on something the broker tells me? Or does it still relate to if it's written in the contract, that's what takes precedence regardless of what the broker told me? Well, I can't speak to what an attorney does because I've never had to do that. But I can tell you this. A, a, a broker has to go through a, whether whatever state you're in, through a fairly stringent licensing process where they have to do education and they have to learn the business. Uh, once they do that, they have continuing education they have to do. I teach a lot of that continuing education. In response to your, your question, the, the broker needs to be the one who brings up Hey, Paul, what would happen if, if this happened? How would this impact your business? Can you pay for it from cash flow? You know, and, and what's your risk appetite? And, and let's make sure that the insurance that's put into place contractually can happen. Now, there's some things that aren't covered. Earthquake's not covered on any policy. If mm -hmm. you're concerned about earthquake, you have to then go buy an earthquake policy. And you can buy insurance for anything if you're willing to pay for it. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this place called Lights of London. I know a few things that have been insured. Exactly. But Rocket launches what, that don't work. <laughs> but what has to happen is, is that the broker has to do a good enough job in conjunction, collaboration with the insurance buyer to figure that out. But there's also, it's not all on the insurance broker. This is a collaboration. The insurance buyer also has to say, hey, I, I, I'm not going to worry so much about if I say something, it's going to cost me more money. I am going to help put together a program that in the event of a catastrophic situation, I know that I have paid the right money for the right policy and that my insurance company is going to be there to help me out. So it is it is a it's a two-way street. It's a three person it's a three entity transaction. You've got the insurance company providing a contract based on what the broker and what the insurance buyer put together. And so it needs to not be looked at by insurance buyers as a necessary evil. It needs to be looked at as a necessary business tool that can save your business, but only if it's done with diligence. Yeah, and I would assume from what we've talked about that a a good broker combined with the insurance agent with the business owner 
if they put in place this risk analysis and have procedures of this is what happens if this happens, they're going to be able to explain that to the insurance agent and make it a preferred rate. They they can and and but I'll I'll, I'll I also want to throw this out there, and this is this is just a reality. The lar- for the very very large um, companies, this happens. It's part of the deal. What you find with small businesses is most insurance brokers are not trained to go through that process, and they get paid on a commission level, yeah. which means that they need to go out. They 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 sometimes tend to be tend to be more transactional, and sometimes with some small businesses, you don't even get a broker because they don't get paid for businesses that are small. So. I say that because it's important to note if you're a small business owner, uh, sometimes that falls on uh, asking for that type of help or finding it in a with a consultant. And that's how I've made my my practice is is that uh, I let, a lot of times I let the brokers go do what they do, and then I help out from a consultative standpoint to do that in-depth analysis because a lot of brokers aren't trained to do that. Okay, great. So I would expect, or I actually would hope, that somebody listening to this or watching this is going to want to contact uh, Dan Whedon and get some advice on uh, risk analysis and business continuity. How can they contact you to learn more and possibly engage with you? Sure. The, the, the easiest way uh, is to call me. I love phone calls, 360-271-1592. What's that again, number again? <laughs> that's 360-271-1592. They can also contact me at dan at danweeden.com. That's D-A-N-W-E-E-D-I-N.com. I do also act as a broker, Paul. Uh, so for my consulting clients, I do uh, the insurance as well for many of them. Uh, but the best, so the best way to contact me for any question like that, <clears throat> excuse me, is dan at danweeden.com or the phone number. All right. And that phone number one more time is? 360-271-1592. All right. Great. Thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us and help small businesses. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul.